kind of know you've gotten to this place of new embodiment where you are able to center, you are able to discern the different mm-hmm. options available, right? Yeah. And to respond yeah. in kind. And so how do we get there? Practice. 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 Yeah. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. And I am so happy to welcome back today Yoshi Silverstein. Yoshi is the founder and the executive director of the Mitsui Collective, and we're going to be talking a lot more about the collective in a few minutes. So we'll unpack it there. And Yoshi is a returning guest. Welcome back, Yoshi. Thank you. It is so, so good to be here after all these years. After all these years. Oh boy. (laughs) And what years have they been? I should say years, decades, unclear. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, what what is time? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So just a little context for our listeners. Yoshi was a guest on this podcast. We recorded the episode in March of 2020. I seem to remember certain things happening in the world in March of 2020. So Yoshi and I had only known each other for, I think, less than six weeks. Uh, We had met at the very last, like, public, no, one of, one of the, the last. One yeah, of the last three, public yeah. convenings, a really, really wonderful gathering considering the intersections of Judaism and democracy and had just connected over so many things. Uh, and, and, you know, this was one of the many ways that I wanted to, to develop the relationship and stay in touch. And so in the intervening years, boy, has that happened um, to, to really wonderful effect. So we we started recording a lot of episodes because at the beginning of the podcast, excuse me, at the beginning of the pandemic, we heard from listeners, we saw trends in the wider world that people are listening to a lot of podcasts. And we heard from listeners that podcasts were helpful. And so we reached out to to you. Where Mm -hmm. were you in March of 2020? I yeah, that was a world away in in so many different ways. So um, I so Mitsui Collective, uh, we had been around in sort of different forms for a few years, a couple of years at that point. Um, as I like to say, we launched our Instagram in 2018 <laughs> and is doing different side gigs, et cetera. But it was really just late 2019 um, that I was really making the jump um, to, to really building and launching Mitsui Collective um, as an organization. And we we meaning my my wife and I and our daughter, we had just moved back to Cleveland only about six months before. Uh, we were still living with my in-laws. So I remember I was in the basement of my in-laws <laughs> in our last conversation. So I, I was, we were saying like pre-call, the only thing that is the same is that we are in the conversation together and I have the same microphone. <laughs> and everything <laughs> else around has changed. Um, and obviously... The pandemic and every, I mean, the world has shifted in so many different ways. um, And it's quite a moment to kind of take stock of how much has happened in the last few years. Yes. And we, you know, we aim for usually evergreen episodes. And I want to locate us in time in our conversation that um, we're recording in the middle of October not that long after the events of, of what are being, is being called Black Saturday, the Hamas 
I'm going to use the word terrorist attack in, in Israel, and we're in the midst of Israel's response to that, and with so much unknown. And I, just as the pandemic remade so much of our world, I, I, I think we, we were talking earlier, we have a sense that this, this is remaking so much of our world. So I want to, I want to, um, register that kind of, kind of earthquake that we're in the midst of. I think maybe I want to take back the word earthquake because of what's going on in Afghanistan. That that kind of um, remaking. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, lang- language is hard. I think that moment of shifting right there, I think, just speaks to me of how language is so imperfect, and how we're striving to put into words that which ultimately can never be fully reflected in in our words. Uh, and I think. You know, as I think in this moment of everything that's been going on for me, um, I think that's what it kind of boils down to is there is so much happening in my body and all of our bodies that is not ultimately anything we can fully put towards. And yet we have to try because that is so much of how we communicate to each other. Um, we're not going to spend the whole, you know, conversation talking about this, but, but thank you for naming that moment. I want to say, you know, very clearly that the attacks by Hamas were absolutely horrific and there's there's no justification for that violence. Um, so like, period, full stop. Mm-hmm. And then I also wanna, wanna recognize the ways, certainly for me and I think for a lot of us, of just how many different things can be going on in our bodies in the, at, at once when something like this happens and there is the fear, there is the grieving, there is anger, all of these things completely justified and probably to be expected. Um, and, and so I think a lot of what I've been trying to hold in these, in these last, you know, t- 10 days or so last couple of weeks is just how do we make space to really attune ourselves to what we are experiencing it so that we can see it really clearly and understand how it's impacting us. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've got, you know, layers of there's what's happening this moment. We've got generations of inherited trauma Trauma. that like we are responding from our trauma, both of this as a traumatic incident and of, of decades, actually centuries of trauma that that lives and passes on through our DNA and our epigenetics and and all of that in our in our, our cultural DNA as well as our sort of you know the biological DNA and so um it's a lot it's a lot to hold it's a yeah. lot. so let's actually for folks who aren't familiar with you and your work like let's actually just talk about Mitsui Collective. I, I'm, I'm I'm honored to be on the advisory committee. And we're and so honored for you to be so, with us. <laughs> so just in, in the, the one sentence is that Mitsui Collective uh, endeavors to build resilient community through embodied Jewish practice and somatic anti-racism. Yeah. And I want to just call up that when you and I met at, at this convening in February of 2020, we were both really leaning hard into the language of resilience, and yeah. um, and and even as this Hashivenu, we still focus in on resilience as well. It's it, it's really kind of opened up in a in a much more expansive way. And you you I think your the the, the focus of of Mitsui uh, there's a there's a deepening and there's a greater uh, but both wider and more surgical or more more. Or, or deeper. So yeah, um, the mission the mission is evolving. Um, 
first, just the note on resiliency. I mean, I do think resiliency is is still absolutely core. It's such an important skill and trait. And um, and then I think the context of of, of pandemic, and then of course, um, and then the racial justice uprisings. The you know, of course, the murder of George Floyd that also um, was one of those really critical junctures, you know, seismic um, events that really shifted a lot of things. Um, we started to hear people, I think, rightfully sort of push back against the language of resiliency and being like, I am tired of being resilient. <laughs> I want to be nourished and cared for and like not have to be resilient. And so um, so for me, that's, that's sort of like 100% shamati. Like I hear that, right? And I think that there are deeper layers of resiliency that we don't always talk about when we talk about resiliency. Well, you do because you have a whole podcast, but like in the broader societal, like, like one of them is to, one of the ways we can talk about resiliency is the ability to withstand pressure, to withstand stress without breaking. And yeah, I think that's an element, right? The ability to like that sense of bouncing back. That's um, the very, that's the core definition of resilience. Like in, in uh-huh. the, Im- the images, um, like a twig that can bend, uh-huh, but exactly. not, not break. Yeah. Yep. And so like bamboo on that mm-hmm. biological definition, bamboo is a very resilient, mm-hmm. it has high tensile strength, so it can withstand pressure and bend, 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 bend um, without breaking. Whereas other, any number of like hardwoods, right. Mm-hmm. That like can't withstand a lot of that without snapping. And so there's that brittleness, um, you know, and what, are, and so one, it's what are the underlying factors that, create brittleness versus resilience. I think, I think part of what we've, I, I think and hope gotten better at a society is understanding more of those underlying contributing factors, right. And sort of laying less of the blame and or responsibility on the individual and understanding like, yeah, there's so much going on that contributes to whether somebody like, you know, nobody with even the most basic of botanical understanding would expect that if you don't feed and water and nourish and properly care for a plant, that it's going to be its most, you know, resilient, thriving, bountiful, right? Like we yeah, get right, that for plants. Right. It's so straightforward. And yet we so easily forget that for humans, even so though. easily, especially under stress. Yeah, exactly. There's so much like at the end of the day, we respond in the same way to both literally, are we being fed? <laughs> are we getting nourished? And also in like the emotional and the spiritual and like all those other elements. So whatever, we could keep on talking about resilience. I think the one other thing I'll note though is like the, is resilience is also about our capacity to adapt to change mm-hmm. and to to expect a changing environment and our ability to navigate that is also a really core part of what I think about with resiliency. That being said, that is, not, so I have a lot of thoughts about resiliency. That's not the core though of what we're really thinking about with yeah. our work at Mitsui Collective. And so, um, so now the way that we're really talking about our work and as our, as our, our mission and vision have been evolving is that we cultivate pathways to Jewish embodiment. And we think about embodiment as being our way of being. Embodiment, our, our embodiment is how do we be in the world? How do we move through the world? What are we expressing through our actions, our behaviors, the ways that we are existing um, in space and with those around us? And so Jewish embodiment is our Jewish ways of being. And mm-hmm. so that is both what, like, how are we expressing our Jewishness? And also how does our Jewishness uh, influence 
who and what we are embodying, what are our core Jewish values, what are our traditions, our wisdom, all of that, and how do we use that to um, move ever closer to embodying our sort of core best selves, um, to really think about our our shape in the world, both by which I mean both our physical shape, like, you know, that's where the embodied practice really comes in and also our metaphorical shape, right? Like what are the shapes that we're expressing and how we move through space and relate to each other. Um, and so that's in, how we're in, in, yeah. individually and collectively. Right? Exactly. Individually and collectively. And so when you meet somebody as an individual, there is so much that you immediately start to pick up on through their embodiment. You know, sometimes we talk about that as like body language and yes, body language is a part of it, but that's that, but there's other things there's too. There's an energetic hit that you get. There's energetic, that, you know. right. There's just like the, the tone of the person's voice. I mean, there's some very physiological yeah. things yeah. of like, is this person smiling or not? Are they, we teach, you know, like, we, we teach rabbinical students about like, yeah. you know, like, right, like self and like, you know, coming into a conversation with your arms crossed is not going to like when you, when you have, want to have a hard conversation is going to like presenting yourself as barricaded and defended is not going to help with a transformative conversation. Uh-huh. Right. And so that's right. Those are very literal shapes that we make with our bodies that tend to communicate things to others, whether we intend for them to or not. So there's that level of cultivating our awareness and all of that. And then we also look at, you know, what are, what are we expressing and how we are moving through space, right? Like something like, do we have deep listening skills, for example? And that's like, Yes, there are certain physical postures that you can use to show that you are listening deeply. And that's not purely a physical position. It's like, it's an embodiment of, am I actually doing the thing of deep listening? And people can tell whether that's happening or not, right? Um, So we talk about all those things when we talk about embodiment. Um, We also talk about our embodied knowledge, the knowledge that we hold in our bodies, um, sometimes we can put that to words and often it's really hard to put into words, but these are things that our bodies, like just the experiences and memories our bodies hold also just our neurological pathways, right? The things that our bodies just know how to do what like, which might be, we might try to put a step-by-step here's how this works. And it's actually kind of difficult, but your body still knows how to do it. Like all of those fall into the embodied knowledge. Um, and then the last thing I think I want to say, which is important, is that we also think about what are all of the different formative elements that have shaped us over our lifetimes. And hopefully many of those are nourishing, supportive, have allowed us to grow into our fullest, freest, most expressive selves. But we know that those are not the only things that form us. And so we have all sorts of constricting, oppressive uh, elements that, that have that have constricted us. So whether that be systems of oppression or different, just like oppressive patterns interpersonally, right? Um, Toxic relationships, um, you know, societal expectations that are constricting, all of these things that have actually limited how we can grow and actually shaped us in certain ways that then impact both how we then move through the world, how free we feel to move through the world, how others perceive us and how we perceive others. And so that's where, again, there are some very physical elements to that. And that's where we spend a lot of our work in um, within the world of what we sometimes call somatic anti-racism or just looking at racialized identity, which literally has so much to, like the ways that we are racialized are not only about our physical characteristics, but 
they can't be untangled from physical characteristics. Like that's, that is how racialization works is by making associations with shared physical characteristics and then layering all sorts of other assumptions onto that. And so that impacts cultural constructions, cultural, exactly the cultural constructions, the ideologies, the assumptions that like, if somebody looks a certain way that I can know anything else about them, like yeah. their intellectual ability, their, you know, et cetera. Their interests. Their, know, their interests, their hobbies, yeah. they're like, yeah. you know, culture, all, all sorts yeah. of things. And so that impacts how we interact with people and how we see others and how we are perceived by others. And so so that's also a, a really core and important element of our work is cultivating our awareness around how that shapes our interactions. And then um, ultimately the the work of transformation, which is to understand, okay, here are the patterns that are serving us to become more free, to become more liberated. And then here are the things that are constrictive. Um, and how do we interrupt the patterns of oppression and create more space to cultivate the patterns of liberation and freedom? Yeah, so powerful. So powerful. So we cooked up the idea of you coming on to the podcast because I was out in Cleveland in early October for this amazing retreat, planning retreat, and we got it on the calendar pretty quickly. And the world is shifting, as we said. And this morning, as I was getting like looking over my calendar and thinking, like, ah, what are we going to talk about? And I don't have time. You know, it's been, it's been, it's been um, like this is the least of it, and and it's just been a really crazy time. Uh, the last 10 days or so. And, and I, and I had this fleeting thought of maybe we cancel this, maybe we defer this, what are we going to talk about? And then I pretty quickly did like a scan of all the ways that I am shut down or impaired or, um, uh, Constrict, you know, constricted in my body that that I just keep getting reminded of, and thought, oh, this is the most important conversation we could have. <laughs> um, and then, you know, just I'll share just one example where I was um, in my meditation practice. Most of the time, I just do a, an insight uh, inspired practice of just you know focusing in my breath and trying noticing and trying to let go. And Shabbat morning, I was in a really uh, triggered and heartbroken place. And I thought if I'm left to my own for, you know, even five minutes, let alone a longer practice, I will just perseverate terribly. And I decided to do a guided meditation. I chose well. And in the middle of the meditation, uh, she, uh, urged us to do some box breathing, which uh, I, which I do often. And I teach sometimes I even recorded a special episode, a little mini episode of Hashiveno to teach it to people. And, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Um, I would love to talk to you, you know, to talk more about the um, in, the importance of embodiment and the importance of practice, and maybe even do a little with you. I, I love that. I think um, we. I, I also practice and sometimes teach box breathing as well, and um, you know, and and folks should definitely check it out. Check out the link to to that practice. I mean, essentially, box breathing is um, thinking about there's about four sort of sides to the breath an inhale, a pause, an exhale, and a pause. Like that's the basics. And then you can sort of map different um, sort of uh, number schemes in terms of like the count or like how how long each of those, of those are. Um, often sort of like a four or a five beat to each side is, is, te- 
is typically comfortable for folks. Um, we will sometimes do a practice that we call seven layer box breathing, where we'll do something where, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to put a timer on. And so we'll do one minute of just one beat per side, which is actually pretty quick. Yeah. It's actually kind of hard in its own way. Um, and then minute two, we go into two beats per side, et cetera, all the way up to then minute seven, we're doing seven beats per side. Um, and, uh, which, which is actually difficult. It's like hard to, it's like feel like the container feels all, both expansive and sometimes stretched. And, and I, when I lead this practice, I also tell folks like, you know, if you're getting to four or five or whatever, and it feels like adding that beat is going to be too yeah. much, stay where it feels good. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I'd rather people stay there. You know, it's more about like being in the practice than like pushing it beyond what is right. And the goal, the goal is actually about re-regulation and yeah. toward like a, a certain calming down. And if the either yeah. the physical experience of or the emotional experience of not being able to breathe is really painful, then then like set it aside. It's yeah, we don't. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. Pain, pain is an important signal to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's important to name is not always about calming down. Mm-hmm. It's about navigating yeah. what is happening in our nervous systems and sort of uh, about a pro- some, a lot often we talk about these as centering practices. It's allowing us to sort of find our center, locate in, like, like settle into our center or, or like in our Jewish language, we talk about, um, we will say this, the sacred center. Um, and we'll talk about our, the seven dimensions of place is one of our core frameworks. Um, Sukkot, which feels very long ago, but wasn't, um, is such a perfect holiday because we actually see two examples of this. We see the shaking of the lulav, which we shake, which is that bundle of plants. That's sort of basically this rain dance. And so we shake it to the front, to the back, to each side above and below. So those are six, six dimensions or six directions. We can think about six sides of a cube and then we bring it back to center each time. So the, the center is that, that, that second. So it's really seven dimensions, right? It's the six sides and then the seventh in the center. And then the sukkah itself is kind of an inverse. It's like the sukkah creates the empty space that we step into and then say the blessing, Lashev Basukha, which is to dwell, to sit or to dwell in the sukkah. And that's what actually activates the space. It's an empty space until we actually enter and activate it. And so Lashev, to sit or to dwell, right, which is um, which is like Shevet seven, Sheva seven, uh, Shabbat, the seventh day, right? Like, um, so all of these, that is the seventh, the seventh dimension, the sacred center. And so I think a lot about when we're doing centering practices, it's allowing us to connect to that sense of presence and activation of, of space and knowing that our presence really matters. So, so a practice like box breathing, I mean, what's actually happening, not, not, not to go too into into too much of a deep dive into the into the neuroscience, but when we when we inhale, we are actually subtly activating our sympathetic nervous system, which moves us not into fight or flight, but in that that direction that people might be familiar with. It's an activated ready state where we're ready to respond. So that's the sympathetic, and then an exhale moves us into parasympathetic, which is that sort of like rest and digest social very like that is the kind of calm, comfortable um, nervous system state. And we are very subtly moving back and forth between those two states 
every single cycle of breath, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes you can actually feel this um, with your heartbeat that that when you take a, a long inhale, you might actually feel your heartbeat subtly increase. And then as you exhale, you'll feel your heartbeat subtly decrease slow or down, slow down. Yeah. And that's and so we're just modulating between those two things all of the time. And and then what happens, I think, when that feeling of being off center is is maybe that feeling of being of there being sort of an imbalance. And so something like box breathing helps us to sort of represence ourselves, to orient our, ourselves back into our bodies and the space around us through that technology of breath, which is one of our most accessible ways to tap into having a sense of being able to influence those internal nervous system states. First of all, what, what an amazing... Um unpacking of and Judaizing of like the importance of embodiment and, 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 and path, path pathways and practices toward embodiment. Oh, and can I say one more sentence, which is yeah. just that, just the, just to make it even that much more Jewish Judaicized is like, there's the sukkah. We can also think about the Mishkan as like yeah. sacred space. So like a space, a, a practice like box breathing is shaping the Mishkan of our body so that we can, then step into that present, like the divine presence of our own body. It's like rearticulating and redefining the physical as well as the spiritual shape of our body as a container for the divinity that is our soul. So very, so very lovely. I think, um, and that's, I feel like that's the, going back to the conversation we're having about resilience, again, less a focus of, of the podcast now uh, but when I was starting to conceptualize it and think about how to do this, like looking at what is it that social science and you were actually talking about hard science there about the, and the, and, and the neurological findings, um, and, and how does it intersect with this, with Jewish wisdom and Jewish practices that are age old? And, um, and sometimes that means a reconstruction uh, of those practices. Uh, it's likely that our ancestors, when they, after they, would say the bracha Elohai Nishama Shanatatabi that there was maybe some breathing practice attached to it. Like was it just an ass- an assertion? But even, you know, Rabbi Rabbi Arthur Wesco teaches like Nishama, you know, like even just the, the the Hebrew word for for breath, which is also the Hebrew well, Nishima is breath, Nishama is soul. They're so intertwined. Like just in the saying it, if you lean into the the last syllable that you're, you're actually, you're doing that parasympathetic piece. So whether or not there was a, a more robust practice um, that was widely available. So, I mean, for me, part of it also was just when I would do something like box breathing, which is you, there definitely there are breathing practices that people do every single day, but like the practice that I try to do every day is my gratitude practice. The a breathing practice I do when I'm kind of in crisis or when things are feeling out of control and it, it is, um, you know, it's, it's a tool and, it, and it's a way from like, if I'm, if I'm at the periphery and things are really kind of crackling and then it is a way to bring it more toward the center. And it's lovely for me when I do, you know, do the box breathing and then I sing one of the many versions of Elohai Neshama that I know. And sometimes I don't do the, he- I don't do the Jewish piece. I don't, do, I don't add a layer in the Hebrew piece. Um, I don't think that we're mandating that it must be Jewish, but we're, I think what we're pointing to is like, how inherent this is, how, how our ancestors had these among other insights in how they conceptualized the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, w- 
one, I do, you asked me to lead us in a practice and I totally went down the rabbit hole of box breathing, but I, so I do want to give us a moment of being in practice. Um, this practice itself is, is a short one and, and it's pretty accessible to do in most contexts, right? Um, which is why I think it's valuable. It's not explicitly or inherently a Jewish practice, but I'll guide us in it and name where I have learned it from, but then I think, but then I want to connect it to, to Jewish wisdom um, after. So this is a practice, um, it's called orienting. I learned this from one of my teachers, Resma Menachem, who is uh, really one of the kind of leading figures and teachers in the world, world of what he calls somatic abolitionism, right? The ways in which we get free through our bodies and build, um, build culture that is healthier and more free for everyone. And so this is a very simple practice. It's called orienting. And basically we orient to where we are, what's happening around us. And the way it works is basically you, um, you look down and you notice what is underneath you. You can also kind of like feel the floor or the ground beneath you, but it's really, you can just do it by looking. And then you look up and again, notice what is above. And we're not, we're not analyzing or critiquing or judging. We're just sort of observing what is around. And then we turn 180 degrees to look behind us. Again, noticing what is behind us, what is not behind us, what's there. Turning the other way, mainly just to even it out, but also to catch anything we haven't seen from that side. And then the final piece is looking around all of the rest of the space. And pausing, in particular, if you're inside, pausing um, to really notice the where the windows and doorways are in your space. And if you're outside, this can be sort of the like, where are there, where are there sort of pathways that you can see, right? R like routes that you could follow versus, let's say, you know, walls, trees, like things that sort of contain space versus things that open up pathways. And that's the practice. That's it. It's just it's it's basically looking around, but yeah. like with uh with with more intention and with sort of with the intention right. of like I am observing what is around me so that I can articulate what is happening and particularly my sense of safety. And yeah. and hopefully hopefully like if you are in a safe space, this practice sort of helps elevate what is like our bodies are consciously subconsciously reminding, reminding us reminding us it's that reminding safe, us right. of the safety because our bodies are con are constantly scanning for danger but that happens on the subconscious and so when we do this we bring it to the conscious level and sort of basically it it, it does calm down the lizard brain it's like yeah, yeah. you're safe there's nothing dangerous around you um by the way if there is something dangerous then it helps to say like do I need to respond to this? Is this an urgent danger? In which case, yeah, you should respond to that danger. Oh, most of the time, well, depends on the context. If we're just in like a meeting or something with work, there's probably not urgent danger, but there might be things that we need to attend to that we're saying like, oh, there's something I don't need to attend to that literally in this second, but I do need to attend to that later. So it helps it put it in sort of like the right place in our minds. Um, and then, and then that act of looking at like the windows and the doors that is helping us to understand 
if if this place becomes unsafe, that's how I get out. That's literally my like exit route. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, as as Jews of any other identity, most of us know that all too well, the need of that possibility of needing to escape, of needing to get out. Um, and for those of us in this conversation and who are listening, who are people of color, right? We know that our racialized identities make in, increase the possibility of being in unsafe situations. Um, so this is particularly effective for, for people of color and people of any marginalized identity, really, um, to be able to, to see and to orient to that and to assess like, yeah, I may not be 100% safe in this moment, but I am safe enough that I can carry on with what's happening with this conversation, this activity, whatever. Um, and just sort of have that sense of, again, orienting to what's around me. Here's the Jewish connection, which is there is so much in our rituals, our understanding of the world and the cosmos that I think is, and and, and in our in our practices, in our wisdom, that is, I think, serves to orient us to where and when are we, which in our work in yeah, Collective, yeah. we we tend to refer to as the Jewish space-time continuum. Yeah, like, like the year cycle and the... Yeah. 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 Like, like, yeah, where, exactly, where in time are we in the yearly cycle? Yeah. Like, there's so much about, like, you know, Shabbat. Like, we mark this moment in time of Shabbat is starting here. Right. Now we have ended Shabbat. It's like we are orienting to time. There's so many examples of orienting to time. And then there's also ways which we're orienting to place sometimes to historical place or like to, to like our cultural memory of both time and place. Um, All of these things that I think serve to then help us to become more present with where and when we are now because we're also connecting because we're like orienting to right. okay here's here's where we are in a calendar here's right. where we are in the world in relation to our personal and collective past which then allows us to notice where again like that was then yeah. and this is now and which is also so much of like talking about like like treating trauma is like like anxiety about what's about to happen or getting stuck in the past. It's there's so much of these like um, uh, of trauma work from what, which I'm not a trauma expert, but from what I understand is like helping people to orient to being here. here right. And not and in the now. trauma or not. Exactly. in the, That's exactly, that's exactly. how I understand it too. So I want to say, um, I want to say that I, I want to, it's both about gratitude and there's this element of sobriety that, um, so Reconstructing Judaism and the Reconstructions Rabbinical College is, we're in an, uh, an, an old, beautiful mansion, so many lovely elements to it. So, so many things that are a pain in the butt about an old hundred year old building and like, you know, like every, like one, one corner's hot, the other side of the building's freezing and that kind of thing. My office, because I am the president, is the one that probably looks the most like when it was a private home and it's a, it was the master bedroom and it's a beautiful, beautiful space and I have six windows. I have six windows. And so when you were, um, you were urging us to look around and especially pay attention and I'm just, I, it's, except when I'm freezing cold in the middle of the winter and because it's, it's really hard to heat. Um, uh, I'm so grateful for the windows and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of woods, like, like in the, especially the way my desk is oriented. I see a lot of trees. Um, 
so that gratitude, um, and then it's like so interesting when you, and then this is nothing I ever imagined talking about, and it, and it feels, uh, I hope it's no more germane, but in emergency planning, uh, this office could be cut off from, there are a couple of different egresses, there are a couple of different ways to get out, and this office could be cut off from it. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I I said to the facilities team, which is, you know, one or two people, it's not a huge uh, staff, <laughs> but I, you know, I said, would you please get an emergency ladder? Yeah. Uh, so that, it, it, you know, if I ever need to get out, uh, there's, there's a way that I know. And so also within my, what's it called, line of vision, um, I see the emergency ladder because I have it. Most people, I don't think, know what it is but it's it's right. right by a window and it's right where i can get to it really quickly and it's yep. um and it does it means that i just i just I, that i crossed it off the list and i don't have to worry about it again it, yep. is, it was a way to manage yep. that yep. yeah which sounds to me like a very reasonable precautionary step to sure, take for five you know for like for the yep. for natural reasons and god forbid for other reasons right you know? exactly and, and i think that's to me where that the role of discernment comes in, you know, like, like awareness, cultivating our awareness and our attunement is really what comes first. Um, and I mean, awareness and attunement to like what is happening in and around our bodies and, and can so I, many, yeah. Can I just talk about the grief that just over in yeah. our talking about that? Like mm. if we're, if we're having an episode about embodiment, yeah. like the grief that I feel like just that, obviously this was something that I thought about a while ago. I, I, I think, I had the, I think it well predates like 2018 and the tree of life campus. Um, but, um, and then also just like the, you know, and, 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 you know, part of my racial equity journey has been like registering the kind of, you know, that, that, that these, these kinds of calculations that, my friends who are people of color who are black and brown have to think about this all mm-hmm. the, like this is a constant scanning and a constant right so just the just the um just feeling it for a second yeah thank you for naming that <sighs> yeah mm-hmm. it is um right like this is part of these are part of the ways in which we walk through the world and what we have to hold and carry. And so that informs and informs our shape and, and in sometimes in very overt physical ways. Right. But it also in all these more subtle, um, often not visibly obvious ways, but it's just sort of like, you know, if somebody was, somebody always had to carry around a 50 pound boulder on their back. Yeah. We know what the physical impacts of that would be over time and and it would impact how they move, let alone their health and their well-being. And so when we have to carry around these emotional mental loads because of different aspects of whether it be our identity, you know, in ways that are marginalized, our personal traumas that people may have experienced, all of that, of course that's going to impact our shape in the world. So often in very subtle ways that are not going to be visibly obvious, but are still completely present. First of all, I'm thinking about like what it did for me in, in naming the grief 
and feeling yeah. it for a, a serious minute as opposed to just shutting mm-hmm. it down, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. how I, you know, was raised to act like that with, with, with no, you know, no criticism of my parents. Um, yeah. like, and like, and, and how that, how tense I get, you know, like, and, and there was actually a softness in naming the grief and then, like, yeah. and, and, a, and, a, and a suppleness, but, and then the liberatory piece, when the DOMA decision was struck down in 2013, I, 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 I would not have said to you, like, I am, I identify as, as white and I am middle class and I have so much privilege. And my wife and I, um, who was, I guess I probably didn't use the language of wife then, even though we had had a, 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 a Jewish ceremony nine years prior to that, I, I felt like I was in support of gay marriage because the, because of what it could mean for people who are more marginalized and the kinds mm. of rights and privileges. And when that decision was handed down and I got the news, like I felt this lightness mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that I, that, that, that there was a heaviness and it was yeah. like, I, I, literally I looked around. It, it, it was exactly the bolder image. And, and like, and, and that's an identity where transformation really can, and legislation really can alter that load. Right. Right. So maybe this is a good time to transition to talking about the role of practice. Yeah, I think this would be a great time to talk about practice. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, so when it comes to embodiment, practice is not only important, it's, it's critical because we have, we, there's our sort of current state of embodiment and then there is what we are working towards. We've also been talking a lot uh, about this question of of what are we embodying, and I mentioned this at the at the beginning, sort of our core uh, values, and for us at Mitsui Collective, it's we really prioritize um, our our Jewish expressions of uh, justice, equity, belonging, compassion, resilience. Um, these are the things that that we see as being part of our collective culture that we're really trying to. Uh, to build and co-create together. And in our embodiment, there are for all of us moments when we are deeply aligned with our core values and beliefs, right? The, the actions and behaviors, the ways that we're moving are fully expressing a value or belief that we hold to be important to us. That's when things are going really well and it feels really good. And easy. There's an ease to it, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, right. It's like, it, it may, there's, maybe there's a sense of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because like the channels are open, and then there are moments which we all have inevitably because we're all human. When there are gaps, right, when we act and behave in ways that do not align with things that we genuinely do hold as core values and beliefs, and that's where, and often there's a lot of real sort of heart wrenching struggle, tension, pressure, etc. So this this brings to mind a quote that um, we use all the time uh, in our work, and I know a lot of people are familiar with. This is from Viktor Frankl, who um, is an Austrian philosopher and neuroscientist and um, and Holocaust survivor. And um, so so talk about a extreme un- yeah. unimaginable extreme circumstance, yeah. and in spite or because of that, this this quote comes. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. Mm. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. 
Hmm. And I'll also just note when we talk about choice, like my bar mitzvah portion, um, Nitzavim Vayelech, is hmm. like also like Moshe is in his final words and is saying, you know, talking to people of Israel as they're, you know, um, about to, he's not going to go with them and they're going into the promised land, et cetera. And he says, I set before you life a, and death, the blessing, blessing and the curse. curse. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. And yeah, I, um, so, that was when... I wrote a vision statement, I guess, as I graduated, and that was the pasuk. That was the verse mm. that I chose to reflect on. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And then it was my bar mitzvah portion, and here we are speaking. I know. How lovely. Many years. So, lovely. you know, <laughs> so. is there any, any, are there any actual accidents? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so when they talk about embodied transformation, they talk about your ability. We sort of have these conditioned tendencies which are the ways in which we sort of default or like default responses to pressure and pressure can be from negative kind of um, places, but it can also be from positive places too. Um, so like, but these like, like some sort of external pressure or presence that is coming in. So this could be anything from like, you get a really challenging email that you have to respond to. That would be kind of like a negative pressure. It could also be like, you know, my daughter who right now is six coming up and being like, daddy, I really want to build a castle with you right now. And that's a beautiful pressure of like being in relationship. And I'm like, I, oh, I got to go record a podcast. <laughs> I gotta, or like, it's my night to cook dinner. I mean, this happens yeah. all the time. Cause it's usually, it happens at the same time that like dinner needs to be made. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I, yeah. Do you want to eat or do you, <laughs> so, it's like, so that's also a pressure. Yeah coming from a very positive place, but, but still yeah. it is then I need to respond to this in yeah. some way. And so we have these default condition tendencies. And so when we think about, okay, what are the, what are the ways in which we want to shift those responses so that we are able to take on the shapes that serve us in, and those that, that we love in better ways and, you know, yeah. healthier, more productive, resilient, whatever ways that then you go through this work where you kind of know you've gotten to this place of new embodiment where you are able to respond under pressure mm -hmm. in accordance with those like core values yeah. and beliefs. Yeah. Um, and so how do we get there? Practice. 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 Yeah. Um, so interesting because yeah. I'm really used to using practice as like a commitment, something I say I'm going to do and I'm going to follow that. And I forget that it's also about like sport practice or, right. or piano practice. It's also about learning to get better. Yeah. It's know? about, it's about, to, we think about it as building skill and building capacity. Cause I, th I think about like the meditation, like don't think about it as an end in and of itself. Like think about it as a thing in and of itself, but I, it's both. Uh -huh. It is both, it's right. Both. It's also right. That like, we can practice to like, like, yes, the process is important and being in the practice and present is valuable in and of itself. And like practice also yeah. helps us get better at things, right? Including yeah. being present and, and being, like, right, and being like our best presence self. Yeah. can actually, right, like our ability to presence, to be present, to presence ourselves. What Like, right, we can think of it like is, it is an actual skill that you can yeah become more skilled at. So yeah, hundred yeah, percent, just like playing the piano, right? It's like, can I sit down and play whatever I am able to play on the piano? And is that a nourishing thing to do in a moment? Yeah. And I can also practice in order to like gain more skill and, and 
ability and capacity in that, in that thing. And so this, our embodiment work is, is the same. And so we think about practice as, you know, what, A, what are we practicing? Because also guess what, what we practice becomes what we are. Yeah. So we are actually always in practice. Um, I think about, uh, from Adrian Marie Brown, emergent strategy, um, that which you pay attention to is what grows. Mm-hmm. My, my, of, that is like Chris, Christina, my wife, that's like, uh, she, who, who focuses in on positive behavioral support. Yeah, and the yeah, whole thing yeah. is, you know, it's, 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 it's against a punishment model. If you're paying attention from the negative behavior, that's going to increase. It's like, the, that's yeah. constantly the dynamic that's yeah. going to be happening. Yeah. And so, so, so we think about practice in, right. That, that we're, putting our energy and our time. We're thinking about the cultivating of skills. And also the more we practice, we also sort of grow our internal capacity to hold more, to be more present, to push into our stretch zones of discomfort, to like all, all, like kind of our carrying capacity, especially when we do that in relationship to others. And that's where there's the collective element where our communities also like a community of practice is not only about each individual becoming more skilled and capable. It's also about the community, that collective body itself becoming more skilled and able to hold more. You know, it's so interesting. I'm so glad you talked about community of practice because when you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, how the mandate toward community is so strong within Judaism and it, it is so seriously eroded by the American commitment to individualism and um, and fueled by consumerism. And I was thinking about community as practice, you know, and that part sure. of, yeah. you know, yeah. like inviting people, like it's not always easy and it's, and it, but we have to get better at it, like showing up and being part of and, and you know, and I, I, I think it's like community of practice and also community as practice. Right. Yeah. Everything that's worth doing, we can get better at and practice yeah, helps us get right. there. And I think the that's last right. thing I want to say about practice is like, we have, there's, there's intentional practice where we're saying, okay, I'm going to make the time. I'm going to enter a space, either physically or just kind of mentally where I'm, I'm like, okay, and now I'm practicing the thing, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, it, uh, in our work, we we talk about that as studio reps. So we're getting like we get reps, repetitions in, mm-hmm. right? You get reps in, and that's how you right. You kind of like at some level, you got to get your reps in if you're gonna develop your skill in something, right? Um, and so we talk about studio reps of like, okay, I'm gonna get into the studio. I'm gonna spend this time in practice, hopefully with other people, right? Maybe in in person or virtually, whatever it is, and we're gonna work on stuff. Um, and we're going to be in movement. We're going to be in our breath practice. We're going to be in chevruta, like embodied partnership learning, because that's also we're not only practicing this thing of like tossing a ball back and forth, but we're also practicing being in a relationship with another human being, yeah. right? Like practicing our response when I drop the ball, right? Our response to quote unquote failure, but also like being in that learning and growth mindset. Like there's so much that we're practicing. There's like, there's so many layers of what we're actually practicing within all of this. So those are those times when we say, when we get into the practice in order to then sort of simplify the variables, right? Which we, you know, saying like, okay, here's what I am practicing right now. And maybe it's not just one thing, maybe it's 10 different things, but it's like, I've created a space in which I can be purposefully in that practice so that our bodies have practiced the internal pathways 
of all of the different ways of being and responding so that when we're in these, the more just like complex reality of just being in the world, right. Where usually it's not so simple as like, there's a ball coming towards me, but like metaphorically there's maybe 12 balls coming towards me. Like my body has, I have practiced in my body, the ability to center the ability to see what is happening around me, the ability to like discern the different options available, right? And to respond in kind. And it's, it's what it looks like on the surface looks very different, but actually what is happening on the inside is far more similar than not. And so, um, and so we talk about studio reps and then we talk about what we call life reps, which is like life is throwing you a pressure and you can you can be bowled over by it or you can, I mean, you might get bowled over by it regardless, but you like, you can sort of be, um, you can just like react to it or you can sort of reframe it as like, oh, life is giving me the opportunity to get some reps in. Yeah. So let me take this opportunity to be in my practice as an ongoing, like, there's no there, there, we're never perfect, right? Like, practice in this case does not make perfect. Practice just makes more skill, more attunement, right? Like, all more of the things. So that's the life rep. And I'll just say we're in a moment right now where, Boy, do we need wow, it. are there a lot of, life is giving us a lot of yeah. life reps. Um, yeah. And um, and just throwing out that question of, like, okay, what do we do with that? How do we discern um, what options we have? in front of us and around us and move with grace and compassion and love um, in our response to everything that's happening. Right. And to go back to something I said, when we were talking about box breathing, life is throwing so much at us. There's such a sense of loss of control. And this is something that we can control. This is something where we can actually take some action and, you know, that it has, uh, it has an impact. It has a, uh, the, the possibility to make a difference for ourselves and for the people in our immediate circle. And if we believe that we all live an interconnected live lives, that if we have a part, we're part of a, a web of connection and, and inter-responsibility, then presumably it also, you know, in ways that we don't understand in ways that are, it's not the only steps we could take, but that it, it makes a difference for the world as well. Yeah. So I'm going to wind us down and ask, um, it's, this is, I could talk to you for hours. This has been such a gift. Um, Mitsui Collective and, um, how does this come to life in the organization and what does it mean for, uh, especially uh, the folks in Cleveland are so lucky that you're there and to have access to this. What does it mean for those of us who live a bit, you know, in other places? without going into all of the ways that pandemic just like shifted all sorts of different things um, and led us to all sorts of different places that in March of 2020, we would not have known. Um, And so I think there's, there's kind of two main things why I already shared some of the ways we've been articulating our work um, in, in updated language really about, about embodiment um, as our, as our overarching framework. Um, We're going to be continuing our national work, um, you know, sort of helping to um, continue to research and sort of look at our methodologies of of Jewish embodiment, bringing folks together, um, you know, we're, we're available to work, you know, to come and do, do workshops in different communities. Um, that's become a lot of bread and butter of what, 
what we've been doing. So we're um, continuing all of that. And the really big sort of growth areas that uh, we recognize, just as we were talking about the importance of practice, and um, we really, we want to be able to support people in an ongoing, you know, consistent practice of embodiment. Um, and so uh, we are, you know, in in the middle stages of, of, of some strategic planning in terms of how we're planning to roll that out. And so we're not not quite able to fully, fully share our plans, but um, but a lot of, a lot to come. Um, and, and again, we want to be able to bring to bring people together so that we can be in that space of practice, um, that we can be nourishing ourselves as individuals and our communities and growing um growing towards a collective community and a collective culture in which all of us um every body right um can um can mm-hmm, be nourished mm-hmm. can be whole can be held feels that deep sense of belonging regardless or in some cases because of i should say um, all of their different identities that that we hold together. Yoshi, thank you so much. This has been such a rich and 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 nourishing conversation, and I'm I'm, I'm so grateful. You know, whereas that I had a flash a moment of like, how can we do this? And, right. and now at the at the end of this, I'm just I'm so grateful that we did have this conversation. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you. And you know, I, I can't wait to see how the work continues and, and all the different places that you take us. Thank you. And like, likewise, I had moments too of like, Oh, wh- what am I going to talk about? <laughs> and uh, just, so, yeah, such a, a pleasure and, and likewise really nourishing and humanizing yeah. to be in this space together. And I think um, may we all continue to, to find and create opportunities to be human together. Yeah. And just connect to each other's shared humanity and see and be seen and felt together as humans. Amen. Amen. Can you hear that song? May it be so. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Yoshi Silverstein about so many things, um, including the importance of embodiment and the importance of practice. You can find more information about Yoshi's work with Mitsui Collective in the episode show notes uh, and also that little mini episode about box breathing. And you can find more on Hashibenu's website, which is hashibenu.fireside.fm. And you could also find a lot more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on ritualwell.org, beautiful poems and prayers uh, speaking to the current moment on Ritual Well, and uh, essays and articles on evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Please, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu.